Welcome to City Speak with Max Masudafarkas. Housing affordability. Arguably the defining urban issue of the last decade, it is a challenge that defies easy solutions. But because of the massive scope of the housing affordability problem in U.S. cities, great rewards await those who can find a solution. Any solution. And it is for that reason that even those who would not traditionally be thought of as real estate developers have suddenly donned their construction hats in the hopes of finding that one innovation that will make housing more affordable. My guests today are three such people. An entrepreneur, a technologist, and a world-famous architect, they bring a wide range of expertise to an industry that they believe is in desperate need of fresh eyes. Bjarke Ingels, Ronnie Bahar, and Nick Chim join me to talk about their new company, Neighbor, a startup founded on a mission to putting more people on a path to homeownership in cities across the nation. Stay tuned. Bjarke, Ronnie, Nick, welcome to City Speak. Thanks so much for joining us. So we'll start with you, Bjarke. In preparing to speak with you all today, I came across a piece about you, Bjarke, by the great architect Rem Kohlhaas for the 2016 Time 100 list a passage which today seems eerily prescient. And I'd like to start by reading a brief passage from that piece. He writes, quote, Contrary to many, maybe including himself, I do not consider Bjarke Ingels the reincarnation of this or that architect from the past. On the contrary, he is the embodiment of a fully-fledged new typology. With that, he is completely in tune with the thinkers of Silicon Valley who want to make the world a better place without the existential hand-wringing that previous generations felt was crucial to earn credibility. So six years on, you, Ronnie, and Nick have founded a startup with its first project in Silicon Valley. How do you situate this latest venture in your extraordinary career as an architect? And is it fair to say that Rem Kulhas was right? Clearly, he is a very, very insightful and talented wordsmith, among other things. And it's true, it, it does ring prophetic today, uh, half a decade later. And I do think also that, of course, we have spent a bit of our career working with some of the thinkers and innovators of Silicon Valley. Actually, a week from now, we'll be opening the headquarters for Google in Mountain View and, and Bayview that we've been working on for the last few years. And of course, that has given us an insight into how this engine of innovation and exploration that is Silicon Valley operates and thinks. And also maybe also the paradox that the kind of incredible success and all of the innovations and inventions and technologies that Silicon Valley has brought to the world has also brought upon themselves a, a huge problem that is maybe stronger in Silicon Valley than elsewhere, but it's actually endemic to the United States and, and even to the world. And that is that this kind of explosion of wealth has made housing and the places we, we live less and less attainable for more and more people. So ironically, as the economy goes up, equality has gone down as a consequence. I actually met Nick before we even started working for Google's headquarters uh, because we were helping Nick and his uh, startup as part of Google X to apply architectural thinking to AI and, and parametrics. In a way, I was trying to help Nick make my own profession obsolete. And then I end up meeting Ronnie as part of WeWork. And again, this idea of trying to sort of reimagining the work environment because more and more people were becoming freelancers or entrepreneurs or, or startups. And then suddenly the three of us came together again 
and thought maybe there was a possibility to apply everything that we have learned within our different professions. Nick from Parametrics and Processing Power on the process of designing and organizing our build environment. Ronnie from the idea of providing work environments at extreme speed and scale. And and for myself, a lot of the work we've done in my native Copenhagen has actually been addressed towards uh, multifamily housing and affordability. And it suddenly seemed like this kind of perfect alignment of interests that the three of us could actually bring our talents together and use the power of Silicon Valley to address some of the problems of Silicon Valley and the rest of the world. That problem of homeownership that you referenced, I want to dive into now. Ronnie, this question's for you. I understand that part of what led you to start Neighbor was seeing just how difficult the path to homeownership has become in cities, particularly in the U.S. Anyone who resides in a city knows this just from their individual lived experience, but you've said that this is a problem that goes beyond individual buyers and sellers, but pervades the entire real estate industry. What were some of the facts that stood out to you that really moved you to tackle this problem? When you start to look at the actual numbers of the inventory that's being put online, you realize quickly that less than 2% of all new housing in the United States is apartment for ownerships in cities. That is a complete mirror opposite of what happens in the rest of the world. And then the ripple effect of that is this whole idea that cities are a place we come, we work, we stay in temporarily, and then we leave. And we believe that when you own a place, you are connected to your community, you're responsible for your civic duties. That's how communities thrive. And when you rent a place, you're a guest. And for me, living in a city for 25 years, renting for such a long time, you constantly have your friends who are stay there for a while, then pick up and move to suburbia. You know, you start your life, you want to own a place, there's nothing you can afford to buy. And services costs go up. I always like to say my, my kid's school teacher shouldn't be commuting an hour and a half to work every day. It doesn't make any sense because I'd like my kid's school teacher to be able to live in, in the neighborhood. And, right. and if it's only done through rental or, you know, stabilized rent or rent controlled, then you go to the other side of it that people buy homes, not only to have a home, but it's the best way to build wealth for yourself. And if that's not available, then you're also impacting tremendously, uh, you know, the social economic gap that's happening in cities. So ownership in apartments we see as a key opportunity, not only from a wealth creation and the quality of life we have in cities, but the last piece of it from a sustainability, knowing that 40% of emissions are coming from the built environment and densification is a huge part of it. So there are so many numbers to look at, but when you look at the basic ones, you're like, wow, this is really affecting every fabric of our lives. The causes of the high cost of housing in cities are obviously manifold, extremely complex. But from what I understand, you've identified a very specific cause that you believe has played an outsized role in rising housing prices. And that can be found in the way housing is constructed. So starting with you, Bjarka, what exactly has gone wrong with the construction industry? And then for you, Nick, what role does technology have to play in addressing it? I think first of all, basic insight is that the power of productization has in all other aspects of our world brought us the kind of miracle of higher and higher quality at a lower and lower cost. It's very clear that the things we make many of, like 
washing machines, televisions, cell phones, computers. We've just seen like higher and higher performance. Like even, even you know, like when you watch the Wall Street movie, the, the cell phone, it used to be like a backpack sized, like useless thing with no signal. And today it's like a supercomputer. And the richest person in the world and a student is actually using the same phone, which is really that democratizing power of productization. Somehow with our built environment, the opposite is really true. In cities in the US, it takes on average the median income person 27 years to save up the down payment for the median priced home. And two years ago, the primary path to home ownership became inheritance rather than work, which essentially tells you that the dream is broken, right? And, and it's just simply one answer is that we haven't been able to apply the power of productization to the built environment. So our homes just become more and more expensive and actually at the expense of their quality. So we've tried to sort of really analyze how can we use a systematic approach? And there's basically two elements and the other element I'll, I'll leave Nick to talk about. But one of the simple things is that there are so many available innovations and techniques readily available out there. We just have to sort of identify them like surgically and then curate them and combine them. And for the last two decades, we've been doing a lot of multifamily housing, especially in Scandinavia. And Scandinavia has very, very high salaries. It has very high taxation and we have shitty weather. So uh, we have put a lot of effort into making the process of building buildings as rational and systematic as possible. Prefabrication, modular units like prefabricated bathrooms, modular kitchens and finishes, modular facades, etc. So on one hand, we're actually taking a lot of the best practices that are already quite well established in a sort of our native Scandinavia. And then we are combining it with a kind of technology backbone that Nick is the architect behind. I think the contrast is in terms of how do you realize projects? So almost all development today is effectively bespoke because every site is different. The policy environment is different. The program and the needs of the developer, the owner are different. And so there seems to be this necessity, this drive to need to design from scratch every single time. Now, everyone has pointed this out and have different solutions to this problem. I think for us, we're trying to find the right answer for housing. So not the general case, but the specific case of urban infill housing. Look at how you can create building or product topologies that's able to adapt to site and adapt to customer needs. And then we use technology to arbitrate between those variations and to drive as much regularity in that process. Ultimately, the reason why development is expensive is because it's risky. The reason it's risky because it's different every time with a different set of people. And so most developers are happy to complete one or two or three projects per year. And the systems and processes that we're exploring allows to complete hundreds and thousands of projects per year. And so this forces us to think differently about the types of solutions we use. So this is not necessarily a drive towards a complete offsite modular construction. It's about thinking about the overall delivery and trying to figure out where the weakest link is and supplementing it. And it's going to be different for every market, for every building type. And the goal here is to find the right product and right systems for all the markets that we want to enter into. So there's no secret here. It's just a lot of work. 
but it's driven by a philosophy to figure out how to scale the production of housing and remove as much risk as possible. One of the specific innovations you are putting into practice in your first project in San Jose is the use of cross-laminated timber, also known as CLT. And this question can be for whoever wants to take it. What is cross-laminated timber and why is it an innovation in the construction industry? Maybe if I start, I mean, in a way, many of the things we've, we've tried to sort of do and, and learn for, and, and I'll get to cross-laminated timber, but essentially one of the things that really inspired us is the success of the Soho loft. And the whole idea of the loft typology, which is essentially a building typology that is a century, century and a half old, that somehow remains evergreen. And it was made for the freedom and flexibility of, of spaces for manufacturing. But today it has become the kind of environment that is also in many ways provides the greatest qualities for living in a city like New York or on the West Coast. And one of the things is that because the organization of the floor plan is somehow divorced from the structure of the building. And the lofts have a structure of cast iron or wood, or in some cases, concrete, tall ceilings, large windows, free spans. And that means that within this freedom, you can imagine all kinds of living. And you have this incredible situation that you have a building in Williamsburg where you have a student living next to a billionaire in the same building and the only difference is maybe the size of the home, how many bays of columns each of them could afford, right. and maybe also the quality and cost of the finishes. And we kind of love that idea that space becomes like a framework that you can inhabit in various ways. But then also that the bones of the building have a quality that is not about this kind of cardboard box of paint, but that there is a real material. And in this sense, the beauty of cross-laminated timber is on one hand, to reduce the embodied carbon in a building, there is no single decision that will get you lower in the amount of embodied carbon than choosing mass timber. Mass timber is very light, which also sort of reduces the cost for moving it to the site. You can source it locally in many regions because you have forestry available around you. And when the trees grow, they absorb carbon from the atmosphere, which means that they actually contribute negatively to the carbon footprint of the building. So in that sense, it is in many ways, ironically, the building material or one of the building materials of the future. But what it also does is that it means that the base building, before you apply any finishes, the columns are made out of mass wood, the beams, the undersides of the slabs. So you don't have to apply additional finishes. The bones of the building are already beautiful mm. and full of like character and organic soul and gentle to the touch. So I think in that sense, in a way, what we're trying to do is identify these elements where you can not only make the building more sustainable and higher performing, but you can also make it more beautiful and more inhabitable. The major innovation I'd say you propose to this problem of residential housing is one you've talked already on, and that is not any one single innovation per se, but a wholesale rethinking of the way buildings are produced. Ronnie, you've emphasized that we ought to start conceiving real estate development, architecture, construction, like a consumer product. It's something we've already touched on. And you've specifically called out companies like Tesla and Apple as inspiration. What is it about those companies that you think is applicable in this context? And how do you think there can be learnings and lessons applied in the construction industry? 
So when you talk about specifically about Tesla or Apple, you look at how did they change their market, right? So Tesla didn't invent an electric car. There were failures, quite a few before that, but they were able to really emphasize on what is the best in class we can put together and what's our go-to-market approach, right? They understood they need to do a high-performance car to get attention, right? You have to beat the gasoline car initially from a performance perspective. And it was a roadster and everybody had attention to it. And then you were able to really invest in R&D and continue to modify your product and get to mass market where you look at that strategy and you say to yourself very early on, right? Everybody was asking online, like, when am I going to get my electric car? That's going to be years away, but you have to start somewhere. And I think that initial beginning really draw everybody's attention. Wow, this Roadster is just an amazing car to start with, right? And when you look at Apple, we all remember there was a Palm before Apple. You can open your Excel sheet. You can have the touchscreen. There were other companies doing it, but no one really captured a true user experience that was so intuitive and easy and it made it almost addictive, right? And then, you know, it took me a while to give up my BlackBerry because I was so addicted to it. But then as soon as you start with an Apple, you're like, oh my God, this is amazing. The standard design that they stay true to this entire run, but it's the user experience that was really intuitive and easy that made it unique. And when we think about that, in real estate, it's a lot more complex because you have this crazy tension between supply chain, capital, policy, and consumers. And there's no trust whatsoever. And the risk factor is just added layers and layers and layers where everybody's trying to protect themselves in the process. So when we think about productizing, we say, what is the product for supply chain? How do we work with supply chain in a productized manner? And Today's supply chain needs to bid for a job and try to win it, you know, in a year and every job is different. Well, if you can work with that supply chain and get the consistency and the repetition, will they improve through R&D process the same way other products do, right? And that de-risks the process, therefore. So when you go to capital, you're like, look, I can de-risk the process, but I also am working directly with the consumer and including them in the process. So we need to engage early with the consumer. So what is a productized approach for the consumer experience that needs to come together? And then policy can start to react to that because policy is trying to protect consumers in many ways and have the right initiatives for the neighborhoods and responsibilities. So there's a little bit of a change that needs to happen of calibration. We call it alignment of the entire chain through a productized approach. So we intuitively obviously jump to a product. We think of a thing, a product for us is a productized mindset systems throughout this process. And so as part of this emphasis on the consumer in the real estate industry, something that I think you've identified as lacking generally in how developers and architects think about building buildings. You've stressed that at least at first, you will not be working with developers, but will control the entire development process from design to construction to operation. You've said that maintaining this control is critical to your company, Bjarke. Is this actually new? And why is it so important to neighbor? I think one of the elements is that Nick mentioned this thing that there is no silver bullet or there's no like sort of major innovation, but it's more like an aggregate of a lot of discrete optimizations or improvements that once you put all these things together, you can actually achieve some of the powers that come with productization. And, and part of the power of productization is this kind of vertical integration of all the elements that come together in a single product offering. So I've spent the last 20 years 
working in the space of multifamily. And 90% of the, the work we end up doing is try to find ways to do things more efficiently or to reduce some costs in, in one little corner. But we always find that any kind of incremental efficiencies that we achieve are instantly gobbled up either by the, the developer we're working with or by the real estate brokers or by the, the land sellers, etc. So if you don't actually control and have alignment in the entire value chain, all these incremental efficiencies will be gobbled up by one of the other players and you will end up pricing for market in the end. So in that sense, what we're trying to do on one hand is to focus on simplifying the project delivery as much as possible. Then also this idea of learning from the loft to have a kind of almost like a space framework that has a flexibility and an elasticity that means that we can apply the same base building in various heights and proportions and lengths, et cetera, to different sites. So it's as plastic and as flexible as possible. And then within that, that we can actually satisfy the widest possible range of potential inhabitants. That means that not only like I'm an architect myself, but Neighbor is going to be working with multiple different architects and interior designers to offer a whole variety of different kinds of homes for different kinds of lifestyles within this free and flexible framework. And then finally, by making sure that we produce an alignment of interest and throughout the entire value chain, we can start focusing on achieving our growth and also our economic growth through scale rather than by extracting the maximum amount of profit from every single transaction, which is what characterizes the, the environment today. And you know the, the reason that this works in productization is that it is understood that you prioritize making more of them for more people. And that's how you achieve economic growth, not by maximizing your margins on every single transaction. And, and even though it sounds incredibly obvious and banal, it's somehow the real estate industry has resisted productization so far, and we are here to change that. I want to add something, Max, on, on the developer side, is that we're eager to work with developers, but we cannot come to developers until we have a product and a process that would benefit them tremendously and would work you know, with us as partners. Because there's no way we can build everywhere on our own. It's just not possible. Uh, there's a lot of local knowledge that goes to that. But what is a developer? Who is the developer? You can ask a lot of these questions differently when you have a productized process and a new way to deliver it. Is it a landowner? Is it a municipality? Is it a corporation? Is it an organization? You know, there's, there's so many ways to think about it because what we saw in the industry that everybody who went to do anything that was productized the biggest differentiator that we saw is they started selling to developers. And what happened was they were in the developer's business because they had to perform to that specific requirements of that side, that performer, that vision, which is very hard to do to adjust your business to different consumers. It actually makes the business not productized in every way possible. So with us, we're going direct to the consumers to build that relationship. And support the consumers. And, and as you know, the real estate industry like this, one of the you know lowest cores in terms of people trusting it in every way possible. So we go straight to the consumers. We build that relationship. We actually get input from the consumers of what we need to build, where we need to build it, what price point. 
we start building our process and roll out products. And then we can go to a different region and say, hey, we have consumers who are looking for the product. Here's the tools that we can give in place. How do we empower more of this to happen in that region? And for us, that's how you actually get to scale. We don't see ourselves as not a great development partner. It's that you have to first get things done in-house right. And then you are in a strong, good position to partner and deliver. And I think developers will be very excited for that. I wanted to comment a little bit about the supply chain and industry. This is mostly my personal observation. This industry historically has tried to push risk through the supply chain. So the developer will basically hire a contractor. The contractor assumes all the risk of all the underlying trades. They then go find subcontractors and push risk onto them. And then everyone buys a big fat insurance policy to cover all the things they didn't anticipate. Mm. It's really difficult to innovate in that environment because just as soon as they win the job, everyone in that value chain becomes a risk manager. They try to reduce risk. So any kind of innovation was the first thing to get tossed out because it introduces risk into this project. And since they historically had to carry on that risk, they have every right to say no to it. You can't expect them to sign a, a GMP, a guaranteed maximum price contract for a particular job if you don't give them control over how it's done. And so for us, it's critically important that we have full agency over this process. So we're not greedy. We didn't want to take on all this work, but we realized that if we didn't take it on, everything that was important to us would simply just be edited out in the contracting process. And so our inclination is actually, let's actually start absorbing more of this risk because by the willingness to absorb this risk, we take the burden off of our suppliers and our contractors, and then we can use innovation to actually address those risks on a long-term basis. So this is how you move this thing forward. If you don't, basically you're stuck. You've done no better than the industry. On the one hand, you have your suppliers who are risk adverse and you're selling to developers on a speculative business model. And so what have you done in the end? You've made just one little sliver just a little bit better, but you haven't solved the structural issues in this industry. And I think our direct consumer approach, our desire to maintain agency throughout the entire process actually gives us the levers to actually make a difference in this industry. Since I began our conversation, Bjarke, with a quote from your colleague, Rem Kulhas, I thought it would be only fitting to close with one from you. In a short essay you penned many years ago, you elaborated on some of the principles that animate your philosophy as an architect. And there is one passage that I found to be highly relevant to the work you will be undertaking at Neighbor, which I'll read now. About your home country, you wrote, quote, the Danish welfare state is the culture of consensus, the socially most egalitarian country in the world. It is ruled by the good principles that everybody has the same rights, every point of view, the same value. Besides the obvious societal virtues, these principles have had a significant side effect in the realm of architecture, a gray goo of sameness accounting for the vast majority of the urban tissue where most attempts to stick out have been beaten down to the same non-offensive generic box. In light of your enthusiasm here for modular housing and experimentations with prefabricated design, 
why should we not think of the work you'll be doing at Neighbor as, quote, a gray goo of sameness of non-offensive generic boxes? Yeah, I actually think it's a great question. And thank you for using my own ammunition against me. But I think it is really there that embracing modularity, because like all buildings are put together of industrially manufactured elements, even cross-laminated timber is essentially an industrial product. So the irony is that I actually feel that when Nick was saying that today, most developments are, are very bespoke, they're very bespoke in the way they're done. But because they then encounter all the same forces of the market and of the industry and this kind of cascade of layers of risk management, regardless of how bespoke the process is, the result ends up in the same place. And we actually believe that by embracing modularity and a systematic and productized approach, we can actually create greater and greater freedom. And in that sense, the the system that we're developing is that by adhering to like creating this kind of bones of the building that are very systematic and with the kind of loft-like freedoms, we can actually imagine exterior envelopes that can have a greater and greater diversity because they can be manufactured like products. And similarly, that we can imagine a greater and greater diversity in interior architectures by even opening up this framework or platform for multiple designers and architects. We actually believe that by embracing this whole thought process, we can actually maximize freedom of expression, both on the outside of the buildings and within the homes. So the ambition of neighbor is definitely to undo this stagnation of sameness that still characterizes the built environment, regardless of how bespoke the process actually attempts to be. Bjarka, Nick, Ronnie, thank you so much for joining us. This has been City Speak with Max Masuda-Farkas, produced in partnership with Urbanized Media with audio production and music by Greg Gordon-Smith. Stay tuned for our next episode.